the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I think it's safe to say that nobody here or really nobody on earth desires to be miserable. Nobody seeks to be pitied by others. Nobody finds joy in embarrassing failures. We all want to have a good life. We all want to do our best to have our best life to maximize our lives while we're, we are here on earth. And perhaps that's why motivational speakers are still around and still very popular, and perhaps that's why many churches today have pastors that motivationally speak rather than biblically preach. We live in a world where people are seeking something better, something more. Fame, fortune, within their means, within their modest lifestyles, at least if in my circles, if I could be the best, if I could be the most popular. And while some would tell you that the answer to your question, the answer to your pursuit is provided by the world, it is found in things like riches and success and fame and happiness and the like. By the way, all things you cannot take with you when you die. The Bible tells us otherwise. It's not that we can't have money. It's not that we can't have things. But those are not the source of your best life today. And since the Bible is clear on this, we've been looking at four truths to embrace to maximize your life on earth. Four truths to embrace to maximize your life on earth. And we find that from 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been studying through this epistle verse by verse. And we found ourselves in the last two weeks in verses 8 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, we took a break last week for the Q&A, but two weeks ago we started this passage, which I'd like to read for you now. From the NAS, Peter writes, To sum up, or finally, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Yes, it is in this passage that Peter... God, through Peter, tells us as Christians how we can have our best life now. And I might point out what you've probably already recognized. There's nothing about name it and claim it. There's nothing about multiple mansions. There's nothing about God's displeasure because you drive a car that costs less than $100,000. Your best life now as a Christian is about the pursuit of holiness. It is about godliness. It is about slaying the sin in your life. And we began this passage two weeks ago, and we saw the first of our truth to embrace, to maximize your life on earth, and that was the consuming character. We saw that in verse 8, where we saw the, the character of what God desires of us to have a good life prior to going to heaven. He says, be harmonious, be sympathetic, practice brotherly love, be kind-hearted, and be humble in spirit. And then we saw, secondly, the righteous response in verse 9. He says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And again, he reminds us of the big picture that as a Christian, you have inherited the greatest blessing. You have inherited heaven. You have inherited salvation. You have been forgiven of your sins. And all of that, all that that entails and having the Holy Spirit in you, being driven by Him 
to have the right perspective on life, to be content even in difficult circumstances, even to find joy in the midst of trials and to grow more Christ-like. All of that. And of course, the hope and the security of knowing that you will one day be in eternity with God in heaven. And he says, because of that blessing, then you should too bless others. Not just people you like, not just people you deem worthy of a blessing, but those who practice evil against you, those who persecute you, those who hurt you, harm you, and give you difficulties. And again, this isn't uh, some sort of mystical thing where you kind of wave your hands in a special fashion and say, I bless you, my friend. I bless you, my son. A blessing is a very practical thing. It's forgiving them. It's loving them. It's giving them a handout. It's doing something practical and tangible even if it means praying for their salvation out of their physical presence. But we continue because Peter goes on and begins quoting the Old Testament, which Chris read for us earlier during our scripture reading. And we get to our new material for this morning, our third truth to embrace to maximize your life on earth is the proper pursuit. The proper pursuit. Let me read for you again verses 10 and 11 of 1 Peter 3. He says, For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Now by starting this verse with the word for, we know that he's giving us the reason for what he has said in verses 9 through 10. The exhortation. He said for. This is why you should do this. And then he embarks on what is the longest quotation of the Old Testament in this epistle, which specifically comes from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 17. We read that earlier, but I'm going to read that section for you again, and you'll see how he is quoting from this, most likely from the Septuagint. Psalm 34, verses 12 through 17. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And the first phrase that we see back in verse 10 of 1 Peter 3 is where the premise, my premise of our outline of our, of these sermons is being your best life now. This is where it comes from. Because Peter is saying in quoting Psalm 34, if you want to have a good life, if you want to enjoy your days on earth, you must do these things. You see, God is not some horrible creature up in the sky that just wants us to live a a miserable life. A boring, humdrum life. Now, it is true that some people may, from the outside in, say, oh, you Christians are boring. But it's because the things that they do are where they find their excitement and happiness, and we just find our excitement and happiness in something else, namely someone else. But the reality is, he doesn't want us to live this life kind of slogging through the mud and saying, can't wait to heaven, this is so horrible. No, he wants us to enjoy our lives. But that enjoyment is not through the pursuit of the things of the world, but through abiding in Christ. Through the pursuit of godliness, through the pursuit of holiness. Now Peter's not making some redundant or flippant statement to people who are already enjoying their lives in the, in the height of the wealth of the Roman Empire. Remember the context. 2,000 years ago, he wrote this letter to a bunch of people who were suffering for Christ's name. And he's saying, look, you want to have a good life, do these things. These are words of encouragement, but also of hope and expectation. Because it's true, our best life as Christians will be in heaven. But for now, you can have a really great life so long as great is defined by Scripture and God and not by the world. So how do we do this? We pursue the right things. And in verses 10 and 11, Peter gives us three pursuits. He says, keep from speaking evil and deceit. 
Turn away from evil and do good. Seek and pursue peace. Let's break those down. First, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So in keeping with our outline, you could say the first proper pursuit is godly speech. Godly or holy speech. Would you turn with me to James chapter 3, where we find a very profound and well-known teaching on the tongue. James chapter 3, verses 2 through 12. And James has a way of keeping it real. He just says, look, I'm not going to be idealistic here. Taming the tongue, watching your speech, this is tough. And he says in James 3, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Let's stop there. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, look, if you can control your speech, man, you've got it made. Because this is hard. If you can control your tongue, right? this is talking about speech, not about gluttony. Okay? If you can control your speech, which is the hardest thing, then you've got it, you can control everything. And then he gives this great illustration from, from the world around him. Verse 3. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. You know what that picture is, right? To control a horse. If you ever, uh, you know, probably not many of us ride on horse-drawn carriages, but maybe if you went to Central Park in New York or something lately, how do they control the horse? Just one little thing in the mouth and it controls the whole body. Then he says in verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. What Peter and James are saying, we must restrain our tongues. And it seems like a simple thing, but what James just told us is that the tongue is like a fountain which pours forth what's inside. And here we start understanding why the tongue is so important. Because the tongue, the mouth, the vocal cords, they do not operate on their own. Rather, your speech reflects who you are. Whether it's profane speech, which by the way is more than just profanity or four-letter words. Whether it's blasphemy or gossip or slander. All of these things in the Christian's life besmirch the very name of God whom we praise with those same lips. Ephesians 4.29 is is such a crucial passage if you're struggling with your speech. It doesn't say some. It doesn't say sometimes. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That word unwholesome in Ephesians is also translated corrupt or corrupting. Let no corrupt, literally rotten or worthless word come out of your mouth. And as strong as that description is, notice in verse, if you looked at Ephesians 4.29, Paul is saying that anything that does not edify is that rotten, worthless speech. So don't just default and say, oh, it's only when, I, when people are being nasty or saying horrible things or, or, or use, using curse words. No, no, no. 
It's either or, there's no in-between. And he also points out that it must be according to the need of the moment. In other words, something may be true, something may even be true about God, but it is not edifying in that moment. As a pastor, if I am officiating the funeral of someone who died as an unbeliever, it is biblically true where he is right now. But it is not edifying according to the need of the moment to say that in my sermon at that funeral. But it is true. Aren't you a pastor? Don't you preach the gospel? We need to be discerning. It has to be profitable at that specific time. Those of us who are married know this. We know just because it's true, we don't say it right away. Maybe we should wait because she's upset right now. Maybe we should wait because he's busy right now. Be discerning. Be patient. I didn't have you turn there, so I'm going to read it again. Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Isn't that huge? You can be a means of God's grace on others simply by your lips. And now we're starting to really get how powerful speech is. It's so important that we understand that holy words only come out of a holy heart, a purified heart. Jesus Himself addresses this in Matthew 12.34 when He says, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, I'll say it again, what you say is who you are. How you speak, what you say is what is in your heart. And that includes what you say in private. That includes what you say to your spouse or your kids or your your non-Christian friends behind closed doors when no Christians are around. That includes what you say when you are alone. You say, well, how do I say things when I'm alone? Social media. Emails. Twitter. That's who you are. And I think that should scare some of us as we look back and think of some of the things we post when we were angry during election time or we're mad during, during certain Supreme Court rulings or whatever it may be. What you say is what is in your heart. And the times that that is not true, the times when you say something that is not truly in your heart, that is what we call hypocrisy and deceit. You're trying to sound like someone that you really aren't. And I want you to really understand, I know I've said it, but to really understand these two concepts, that we're not just talking about incredibly nasty, evil speech, and we're not just talking about speech that has nothing to do with the heart. I really want to hone that in, that your circumstances don't dictate your speech, your heart does. For example, if you have a pattern, not a, not a one-time off thing, we're talking about a pattern, a characteristic of sin. If you have a pattern of hurtful and nasty words toward your spouse, that is not a sign that you are responding to a stressful marriage. It is a sign of a lack of purity in your heart. If you are constantly gossiping and putting others down at work, That's not indicative of a toxic workplace. It's indicative of an unholy heart. If you're constantly angry and slandering liberal politicians, that's not championing the cause of morality. It's harboring a heart of disobedience. Your mouth is reflective of your heart, not your circumstances, not your bad boss, not what you think your spouse is doing. Christians, we must practice godly speech because we are to cultivate godly character. There is no disconnect there. It's the whole thing. But Peter goes on and he gives us a second pursuit. Not just godly speech, but to turn away from evil and to do good. I mentioned this, I believe, two weeks ago and probably multiple times before then. 
But I'm going to say it again. True repentance is a full turn. You don't just stop something. You replace that sinful habit or that sin with something good. And in fact, Ephesians 4.29 is in a, in a longer passage and where we're given a lot of examples of this. Right? And we just saw that. Don't just stop speaking unwholesome words. Put on edifying words that give grace according to the need of the moment. That passage also says the thief should not just stop stealing. He should replace that with a job. And that's not even enough. It goes on to say, and use that money he earns to give to others. And here we have that full 180 degree turn. It is not enough to turn away from evil. We must replace that and do good. So to turn away from evil doesn't just mean to dislike it or ignore it. What Peter is referring to is a loathing, a hatred of evil. And before you start thinking about all the evil people you see on the news or think of around you, we're talking about first and foremost the evil in your hearts, the sin that you practice. He's talking to Christians, turn away from evil and do good. Romans 12.9 says, Abhor what is evil, hate it, loathe it, and cling to what is good. Psalm 97 says, Those who love the Lord are to hate evil. Sin is evil. And if you find yourself as a Christian continually, continually falling into the same sins over and over again, it might be because you're okay with it. You tolerate it. You live in harmony with it. Whatever it is, you definitely don't hate it. And when you don't hate it, it'll come back. You won't flee from it. You won't avoid it. And what we need to recognize is that we enjoy our sin. That's the reality of it. Our sin feels good. That's why we pursue it. It feels good to lust. It is easier to lie. It's comforting to keep all your money and not give. You don't hate it. You enjoy it. You like it. So you tolerate it. You justify it. And then you practice it. Sure, you may feel bad afterwards. You may hate the fact that you did it again. But you don't hate it. And I think perhaps the tolerance of evil is because you have just made that 90 degree turn. You're just trying to stop practicing those sins rather than replacing those with obedience and holiness. Again, God says don't just turn away from evil, but do good. Not just outward actions, but a deep down inner virtue of good. Let's avoid legalism here, right? Let's avoid just doing the externals. Do you truly hate it? Do you truly value the joy of obedience and the glory of God over the passing pleasures of that sin? And although this may seem very general, don't do evil, do good, the depth and degree of what Peter is calling for here can be life-changing. Because it's at the level, it's at a foundational level. It's at the level of principles and character that then flows into your actions and your words and your thoughts. It must start with the heart. No one was happy in a marriage where you realize the spouse is just going through the motions. I don't think we've ever been in this, but I'm just saying hypothetically, you get this, right? I know he or she doesn't love me. She does, he does this because he's supposed to, because he made some vows 30 years ago. He buys me flowers because it's February 14th. But I know, I know what he says to the florist every year, the sarcastic remarks about me. Just going through the motions. This is what we want to avoid when we say avoid evil and do good. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just make a list of things that look like good. Start with the heart. Ask yourself, pray about it. Why do I not hate evil? Why do I know the good to replace these sins and yet I keep them at arm's length? Deal with the heart first and then that will flow out into the proper actions. Again, we're talking about the proper pursuit. The proper pursuit is not just doing things, it's character. And so let's go to the third. 
The third proper pursuit, if you want to have a good life now, he says, seek peace and pursue it. We are to be peacemakers. One of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A peacemaker is exactly what it sounds like. Someone who makes peace where there previously was not peace. So this is not speaking of peace as in tranquility. This is not saying if you want to have a good life, do what many people have done and it didn't work. Go find a mountain and a hill, a monastery and become a monk. Concentrate on your breathing. Go, you know, go meditate somewhere. Not like biblical meditation, but meditation, right, for five hours a day. That's not what it's talking about. He is saying making peace. This is talking about interpersonal relationships. And this includes making peace with those who persecute you, as well as those who don't know Christ. And naturally, peace as in tranquility or the the removal of anxiety, that will be a secondary result when you know that you're not at war or at discord with all these people in your family and in your church and at the workplace or wherever it may be. And it's not that we are to only seek peace when, when war or discord comes our way or when it's convenient. Peter says to pursue it. This means to hunt it. it, it talk, this is expressing a vigorous, aggressive, and intense effort to attain it. Get involved. Well, I texted him. He didn't text back, so I guess that's how it's going to be. No, you pursue it. You knock on that door. You call them. You say, what have I done? Will you forgive me? Not in a flippant way like my kids do. They have no idea what they did wrong. They just want their, their TV back on or whatever it is. Sorry, Dad. They don't know what they did. They're just saying sorry because their mom said go say sorry. This is not it. This is true, repentant, seeking peace. And remember, we're talking about how to have a good life while on earth. Certainly seeking peace will help you with that. Nobody wants the inner and external turmoil of being at odds with one, with another person or having ill will towards another person or knowing that you have caused ill will towards yourself. And this, this takes being on the high ground. Right? We can't just say, this person doesn't like me for no reason. I, don't, I didn't do anything. You did something. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong according to Scripture, but you did something. It's called taking the high ground. It's called being a leader. It's called sucking it up. Don't say, what did I do? Yeah, he said I did this and this. I didn't really do that, but I told him to forgive me. No. You know, whenever there's ill will towards you, it's a good time to evaluate your life. We're not perfect. God places these circumstances and these people in our lives so we can evaluate our lives and say, did I do something wrong? Was I rude? Was I mean to that person? Was I short with them? Maybe there's even something bigger. We, we are people who want a good life now because of godly character and pursuing that. And so there needs to be a constant evaluation of where we're at with the Lord and maybe it is true that they, don't, they just don't like you because they're racist or they, don't, they just don't like you because you're a Christian. Well, then you deal with that and you still make peace with them as we've been seeing in, in the entirety of, of 1 Peter 3 thus far and the end of 1 Peter 2. Keep in mind, as I've said before in prior sermons, that peace is not at the expense of doctrine or compromising your beliefs. On the contrary, we pursue peace because of our doctrine. Because we believe this is what God desires of us. So that's the threefold proper pursuit. Godly speech, good instead of evil, and peace. Let me give you a fourth truth to embrace to maximize your life on earth. And again, if you're confused, we covered two of them two weeks ago. We've done one today. That was our third. Today is our fourth. And that is the magnificent motivation. The magnificent motivation. Why should we do all these things? Verse 12. For or because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer. 
but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter concludes again with a quote from Psalm 34 that explains why we should seek such things, not just what we've talked about this morning, but the right character in verse 8, returning evil, not with evil, but with the blessing in verse 9, and the three pursuits we just looked at in verses 10 and 11. And the reason we are to do these things is very simple. It's God's favor versus God's wrath. In verse 12, God's favor is seen in that His eyes, we're told, are toward the righteous and He listens to our prayers. Now first off, we are reminded that everything we've seen in this passage is characteristic of His people, the righteous ones. So He is not telling us that we are to pursue righteousness in the sense of being right in God's eyes. We can't do that. It's because we are already declared righteous by virtue of Christ's blood and sacrifice and His perfect life on earth. However, that righteousness, the fact that we are Christians, we are objectively Christians, we are declared righteous, it leads to, in a practical day-to-day way, righteous living. And this is what He has been calling us to pursue. So when you see the word righteous, we understand that this is only possible through Christ. Ultimately, it is a relationship with God, a faith in Him. However, the relationship is expressed in appropriate behavior that we call righteousness. And the kind of behavior we have talked about this morning and two Sundays ago. And he says, for the righteous, the eyes are toward them. This is a common phrase in the Old Testament that refers to God's special, caring watchfulness over His people. And this is probably the greatest comfort during difficult, terrifying, or even uncertain situations. right? When circumstantially you have nothing else, the doctor says we can't do anything else, we just wait. As Christians, we say, well, we know God's in control. God's watching over me. Of course, that doesn't mean you'll get better. That doesn't mean you'll get a job. That doesn't mean you'll get out of bankruptcy. But you trust God's sovereignty and His provision and His care. But do not be deceived. This is a blessing even when you fail to recognize it. God's watchfulness over you is a blessing when you think things are going well. And objectively, things are going well. You could even say that it is because of His concern that you have so few difficult, terrifying, and uncertain situations. And you say, no, 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 you don't know my life. I've got this illness, no one knows what it is, and I'm constantly tired, I'm constantly achy. You don't know how many of my children have had problems. Can you even imagine how worse it would be without God? Do you understand that it's not just God? It's, you know, it's not some cartoon or some, some weird theology that we, we, we believe when we're children. Oh, that Christian is going through a hard time. Knock on God's throne room door. God, you need to watch over him now. No, he's watching over us all the time. It reminds me of what is perhaps the most famous of the Psalms, Psalm 23. Would you turn there with me? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, and I want to read the entirety of it. And though David talks about difficult times and indeed was going through difficult times when he wrote many of the Psalms that we know he wrote, the truth is at all times. Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. You see the picture there? A shepherd and a sheep. Green grass to eat fresh grass to fill his belly, soft grass to lie down in, fresh clean water. Verse 3, He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I want to talk about this more in a few minutes. But he ends that with the key of understanding how to have your best life now and how to attribute it in a pursuit of God and because of God. Because ultimately, we know where we're going. There is a day that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Part of God's watchful eye, Peter goes on, is that He attends to our prayers, or if you have the ESV, is open to our prayers. The NIV says He is attentive to the prayers of the righteous. Now the Greek word here means more than just listening. It's not just saying, oh, God listens especially to the prayers of believers. This word that's translated here as, as uh, attends or open or attentive is the picture of an individual getting down close enough that his ear is right in front of your mouth. This is not the gesture of someone who is hard of hearing. This is the gesture of someone who is displaying an intensely personal, loving interest and doesn't want to miss a word. God, very God, the judge of the universe, the creator of all things, kneels down and cares so much about you and wants to know so badly what you desire that he kneels down and puts his ear right up to your whiskers. On the other hand, we're motivated to godliness because Peter goes on, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To be clear, you cannot lose your salvation. You will not face the wrath of God ever if you are a believer here. The discipline, yes. The wrath, no. But to be clear, as an individual, as a human being, you either do good or you do evil. There is no in-between. So I just want to be clear that Peter, God, is not saying that there's Christians and then there's vile criminals and then there's the majority of the human species in between. No. There is a dividing line called Jesus Christ that you are either for Him or against Him. So either He is watching over you and is attentive to your prayers or His face is against you. Now the face of the Lord, as we saw with the eyes, is an Old Testament concept. The face of the Lord that is against those who practice evil refers to, throughout the Old Testament, God's judgment. It refers to His anger. It refers to His displeasure. And to bring it back to the idea of how to have your best life now, according to the Scriptures versus according to the world, it does not matter how well you have done in your life now. It does not matter how rich you are, how beautiful you are, how successful you are, or how noble you are. You may be the cream of the crop in the world. You may be on the tops of the, of the Forbes billionaires list. You may be the CEO of the, the greatest company that is doing the most good, cleaning up our oceans and, and helping the poor. But if you do not follow Christ, and I say this not in a condescending way, you are the most to be pitied because God's face is against you. If you are not a Christian, I don't blame you for pursuing things of the world. You have nothing else. But there is an option, and that is Jesus Christ. That you can turn to the Lord, and, I, and these are concepts that may not fully make sense to you if you don't have the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to dangle something in front of you. But the reality is, 
some of the most successful men that I know in the business world are elders in their conservative evangelical churches. They have changed the world of the food industry and the financial industry. I know a man who is so influential on Wall Street that he has, I've mentioned him before, has rung the bell to open or close the stock market many times. It's not a big deal anymore to him. He does it because the stock exchange makes him. you got to come do it. You have a new ETF on the market. You need to come ring the bell. Does it make him ungodly? No. In fact, a, a man that directly or indirectly because of my training and my spiritual growth and my understanding of the gospel, he's just a man used by God, but a, a great godly man nonetheless. John MacArthur's son moved to Chicago, joined this man's church, was discipled by this very wealthy man, and has publicly said, outside of my father, John MacArthur, he is the godliest man I have ever met. What I am saying is, as Christians, we pursue godliness first. And should the Lord in light of, not because of godliness, okay? Godliness does not equal material success. If He should so decide to give you earthly success, then praise Him for He finds you worthy in your godliness to handle that money and that influence in a way that will honor Him. Because that can be very dangerous for the ungodly and very tempting for someone who is declared righteous to live unrighteously. But... That is not our reason for living. That is not our source of joy. You see, I mentioned this earlier. Part of this great life is longing for heaven to be with Him. It is all wrapped up in God's desires and the kingdom of God. If you find all your happiness in the things of the world, if you are completely content with the things of the world, if you are driven by the things of the world, then you won't long for heaven. And if you don't long for heaven, it's because you don't long for godliness. And if you don't long for godliness, then naturally you're playing with all these things that we've talked about here. Your speech is wicked. Oh, not here on Sunday morning. I know that. But when you go home, maybe even on the drive home today, and you're struggling with these sins over and over again because you're, you're finding your pleasure and your happiness in the things of the world, including the physical pleasures in your own body that the world can provide. Oh, you will long for more things in this world, but not for heaven. It's never enough. People, people say, how much money is enough? It's never enough. And some of these big players in Silicon Valley, they could retire now at 40 years old and live for the rest of their days. It's not even about the money. It's about success. It's about building a new brand. It's like making a name for themselves, fixing something. It's, it's something in this world. And we're not at that level, most of us. But if your, your hope is only in this world, you will always look for one more. There's always something. Don't tell me just when you get this you'll be satisfied because when you get that there'll be something more. One more car. A nicer house. Or no more apartment in our first house. A child. Our first child. A spouse. And it may not even be something big like that. It may just be the day-to-day things of the world that you pursue. One more perfect meal. Just one more overseas vacation. One more bottle of cologne. Whatever it may be. Just always one more. We want one more. Because all our hope is on this plane. It's on this earth. And this is why it is imperative to understand that what God desires is not worldly success or even happiness, but true joy, which only comes from Him. And I know we use those interchangeably, but let me just define how I'm using it. According to Scripture, joy is only found in believers. 
Because joy can only be found in Christ. The distinction I'm making, and if you use in your normal conversation, you mix the two, that's fine. But for theological purposes, happiness is fleeting. Happiness is rooted in circumstances and emotions. It's not based on objective things like God's truth and God's character. He wants us to be joyful. And that's why God doesn't just say, well, you know, sorry about these trials. He says, I'm sending trials your way. Because you're going to grow and have greater joy in me through those trials, through those difficulties. And when you master this, part of this is being a good steward. Part of godliness and holiness is being excellent. So be excellent in your job. And if being excellent in your job means you are to pursue that raise and pursue that job title, so be it, but do it for the glory of God. This isn't a thing where we say, well, money and success are of the world and I want to be godly so I'm just going to be lazy at my job. No. Do your best. But just keep in mind, you do it for the glory of God. You want a bigger house? Hey, great, more power to you. You and your holiness and righteousness, you want another car so you don't have to share a car with your spouse? Fine. You want to stop taking the bus? Fine. You want a Mercedes-Benz because it's more reliable? Fine. That can all be done by Christians for the glory and fame of His name so long it is done with the right perspective and with the right foundation of holiness. Don't confuse what many people in the world and many fraudulent pastors tell you that you will have your best life now because God wants you to be healthy and successful. And so if you happen to get cancer when you're 30 or 40 or 50 years old, that's a sign of God's displeasure and unholiness in your life. That's a lie. That's a lie. You make minimum wage, you're barely scraping by to pay the rent, to light, you're scared they're going to cut your power and water. It's not because you're not doing God's will. That's not because you don't have enough faith. That has nothing to do with it. These people are ear ticklers, the Bible says. These people are charlatans. And sometimes, I understand, I don't do it often, but you, you know, two weeks ago you say, man, how could you name names? How could you, how could you name that individual's name and say he's a false teacher? Because part of my job is to protect you. Part of my job is to keep you in the truth and to be, to, to unmask the wolves in sheep's clothing. It is dangerous because these people are lying to you. And you can see it from this passage, these past two sermons, you can see how these are lies. They get you to focus on the wrong things to the point that you actually think you're out of God's will because you don't drive a Rolls Royce. Give me a, give me a break. These people are condemned by God because in the name of God, they're twisting scriptures and lying to people. Friends, you want your best life now? Pursue holiness. Pursue godliness. And you know what the beauty of that is? When you do get that raise, when you do have enough money to buy that fancy car, you can take it or leave it. You couldn't care less because you are so satisfied and content in God that, yeah, sure, it would be nice to have a more reliable car, but you know what? The old beater still goes. still works. It just doesn't matter. You may buy it, but it's like, eh, it's nice. It's cool. You know, the other partners, they kind of forced me to buy this because it looks bad, you know, in front of the clients when I'm my, you know, my car is firing up and, you know, I've had that happen to a friend who was a Christian. The partners were like, listen, we get that you don't care about nice things, but look, you're making us look bad. So he bought, he bought a nice car. But he doesn't care about it. You know? I don't think it's a sin to want those things. It's not a sin to enjoy nice things. It's not a sin to, to eat out or, or to enjoy a, a Michelin star restaurant in the city or whatever. There's a ton of them here. But as long as your perspective is right, as long as you are glorifying God, enjoy that Hawaiian vacation. Tell the Villanuevas I said hi. 
You know, go to Europe. Go buy those things. Buy your, whatever it is. But make sure you get the right thing right first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and hear and preach your word. It is so encouraging, Lord, to know that you are working in all of us. I am confident that the principles I have laid out are not new to anyone here. That you have provided your word, you have provided your spirit and guidance so that there is no one who is finding their true joy and contentment in success. You've given us your spirit that's given us enough discernment to know who the false teachers are. But Father, we do have tendencies to want to keep up with the Joneses. Perhaps we find our, our hearts jealous of those who have nicer things, maybe even nicer things that we can avoid. We just don't want and we're tempted to, to show off our wealth or whatever it may be. Lord, help us to seek a good life on this earth through the right things, through the right means. Teach each and every one of us as individuals what it means to have true joy and not just happiness. May we pursue godliness. May we pursue the right character. May we pursue blessing on others, especially those who do evil to us. May we guard our hearts so that our speech might be like that fresh water stream and fountain. May we live in a way that we live out our calling as those who are righteous and enjoy and rely on the fact that you attend to our prayers and your face is not against us. Use us, Father, for your glory. Help us to have a biblical worldview and a healthy perspective on the things of the world, whether it's relationships, physical health, finances, things, whatever it is, Lord. Should you grant some of us the ability to buy those things, may we do so to your glory with discernment, with good stewardship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.